All right, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> so that's a pretty tough act to follow, right? We've got uh, water spigots in the back of the room. <laughs> but we're uh, also back in Mark, as Jeff mentioned this morning, and uh, we're picking it up in Mark chapter 9. So we're going to do the first 13 verses. But we haven't been in Mark for a while, so I figured I'd just do a quick reminder of, of where we left off um, the last time Mark was taught um, late summer. Um, at the end of chapter 8. So, uh, if you may recall, uh, chapter 8 was a turning point in the Gospel of Mark. Um, specifically, verse 27 of chapter 8. We're not going to spend too long here, but um, again, it has been a while, so let's just do a quick run through there, um, so we all get grounded on the, on the context of where we are this morning. Um, so I'm going to read eight twenty-seven through 30, uh, just really briefly here. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So Peter recognizes, right, this this turning point in the Gospel of Mark. Um, He recognizes out loud that Jesus is the Christ. He says it. And this is a significant revelation. And Bill talked about that in his teaching on this text uh, earlier this summer, like I said. But the next section kind of takes the wind out of the sails a bit. Next section at the end of chapter 8, that is. Jesus starts teaching about some pretty difficult things that the disciples aren't really willing to accept, and things that they just don't completely understand. So let's look at verse 31. Um, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And so I'm I'm thinking the disciples, when they heard this, uh, they're probably following a part of what Jesus is saying here, They've literally seen some of these things happening before their eyes. Rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Check that, been there, they've done that. But suffer many things, be killed? That's, you know, what's that all about? And the next, the text says that Peter, after he said this, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. And with what we know about Peter, you can kind of picture this, right? Him starting to tell Jesus, suffering, you, you being killed. No, 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 that's, that's not what this is about. You're the Christ. We got this. Don't worry. We're not going to let that happen to you. And Jesus responds very strongly, saying, get behind me, Satan. And Jesus calls out the words of Peter in this, in this instance as coming from Satan. In the following verses at the end of chapter 8, leading up to chapter 9, And actually, verse 1 of chapter 9 is also part of this. These verses show why Jesus is using such strong language here. He starts with, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. He's saying, you see, Peter, you may recognize me as the Christ, but you're not looking at what that means with a spiritual, God-centered mind. You're looking at it as just a man. And the following verses just drive this home. 
There are some familiar things said here, right? Any of us who have been in Christian circles for any length of time, we've heard these words before. And Jesus calls the crowd around him to hear these things. He's not just with the disciples anymore. Again, I think it's worth reading these since it's been a few weeks, and we need to be reminded of these truths, and they're relevant to our text. So these are the last few verses of chapter 8. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So the familiarity of these words to us may take some of the heaviness away. It's easy to just read over them and not really appreciate what Jesus is saying here. Deny himself, take up his cross, lose your life for my sake. These are not things that men, left to our own devices, do. And I'm referring to the original purpose of these words that Christ uses. Taking up a cross does not equate to us not getting what we want or what we think we deserve. We use the term that way, but it diminishes the gravity of the cross. Taking up the cross is suffering for the sake of Christ, and the disciples and the crowds are still missing this. And Jesus calls them out on it in in the first verse of chapter 9, where he says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come to power. So we'll get more into that in just a bit. Um, But first, let's read the the rest of our text this morning, chapter 9, the first 13 verses. I'm going to start with chapter 2, since I just read chapter 1. So chapter 9, starting with verse 2, we'll go up to verse 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. 
So obviously this text is the transfiguration of Christ. And the theme I've chosen for it that I I hope to to make known here in this study is that the kingdom of God can only come through Christ's suffering and death. And this theme is really given to us in verse 1 that I read earlier. When the kingdom of God has come to power, and the disciples and the crowd of people hearing these words from Christ himself, they were going to witness this firsthand. So this passage is in two parts. You probably recognize that as we are reading it. So the first um, eight verses um, is the journey up the mountain and the events that happen there once they reach the top. And then verses 9 through 13 is the journey back down the mountain. And it includes an intimate time of teaching, uh, Jesus teaching some of his disciples, uh, Peter, James, and John, who went with him to the mountain, as we've seen in prior passages, right? The intimate teaching after a, a large event. So let's dive into verse 2, where we read that six days have passed since the end of chapter 8, in chapter 9, verse 1, and Jesus leads Peter, James, and John up a high mountain by themselves. So the other disciples and the crowds are left behind. Mark doesn't specify the location of the mountain of transfiguration, as we commonly refer to it. But the last specified location that we're given in chapter 8 is Caesarea Philippi. And I wrote that on my map over here. This is Caesarea Philippi. This is the Sea of Galilee for reference, where we've been before. And there's only one mountain in that region that kind of fits the description of what we're told. And it's called Mount Hermon. It straddles the border of modern-day Syria and Lebanon. It's part of the Hermon mountain range, which covers about 270 square miles. And Mount Hermon itself consists of three peaks, each with a summit of over 9,000 feet above sea level. All three peaks are snow-covered throughout the year. So this isn't a Midwest mountain, as we, we call them. <laughs> Um, the largest mountain in Michigan is 1,200 feet. I didn't know what name it was. It really doesn't matter because it's not really a mountain. <laughs> Pennsylvania, all the mountains in Pennsylvania think, well, that's, that's a mountainous region. Those must be thousands and thousands of feet. The highest mountain in Pennsylvania is just over 3,000 feet, which shocked me. I grew up in Pennsylvania. I thought we were much higher than that. The Rocky Mountains are over 14,000 feet, just for reference. So at 9,000 feet, this was a significant geographical feature of the area. You can Google pictures of Mount Hermon uh, this afternoon, and uh, you'll see for yourself that it's a monster of a mountain. It would definitely be a place of solitude. The fact that Jesus had to lead his disciples there indicates that it probably wasn't an easy journey. The crowds would not be following him there. Also, the traditional site of, for the tri- transfiguration is Mount Tabor. This is just outside Galilee. Um, it's important to note that Caesarea Philippi and Galilee, or Mount Tabor, is about a three-mile distance. So um, it's not likely that that was the actual place. <clears throat> um, it's not very high either. It's only about 1,900 feet. 
And third, it would not provide any solitude at all. There are actually people hanging out there. There was a fortress there, people living there. It wasn't somewhere where you go to get away from everyone. There would actually be people there. And you can find pictures of Mount Tabor online as well, as you would imagine. And I'll admit it looks a little bit more like what I always imagined the Mount of Transfiguration to be. Um, but, you know, that's just the way it is. The facts don't really support that. So Jesus leads Peter, James, and John up the mountain. They're all alone. And we know that when mountains are involved in the Gospels especially, something significant is about to happen. And we've seen some of these already in Mark, and we'll see more as we continue our study. Jesus prays, he preaches, he performs miracles, he's tempted, he calls disciples, he sends them into mission, and he accomplishes his passion on the cross. All these things happen on a mountain. In other areas of scripture, we see God encountering and revealing himself to humanity as well. I've got a whole slew of mountain references here if you're interested, um, from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, let me know. <clears throat> Probably should have listed them on the board, but I didn't. Anyway, we see what happens at the end of verse 2 and, and 3 in typical Markan style, right? And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Short and to the point. But there's a lot in these statements. If you compare this account to Luke 9.29, it's mentioned that only Jesus' appearance was changed. But Mark, which is followed by Matthew, Matthew account of transfigurations in 17 verse 2, it's recorded that Jesus was not only transfigured before his disciples, but also on account of them. The Greek term for to transfigure is metamorphoon, which means to change, and it's only used four times in the scripture. One in Isaiah, Mark 9, of course, Matthew 17, and Romans 12. In each of these times, it's in reference to radical transformation. In 2 Corinthians 3, chapter 18, Paul says that as a consequence of beholding the glory of the Lord, we were transformed, again using this Greek word, metamorphoon, from glory to glory. Another example, in Isaiah 7.25, we read that the glory of Isaiah's countenance was being transformed as he ascended from heaven to heaven. In Mark's narrative here concerning the transfiguration, metamorphoon does not signify a change in Jesus' nature, but rather an outward, visible transformation of his appearance to coincide with his nature. I think that's key. His clothing is described in the Christian Standard Bible as being dazzling, extremely white, as no launderer on earth could whiten them. (laughs) This description is a bit awkward, but it, it conveys the point that's being made. That Jesus' transfiguration is so complete that his clothing, as well as his person, is transformed. So that even if, if Jesus, for some reason, was wearing a dark black trench coat, right, it would have turned completely white, as white as anything on earth could be. And I think that's the point being made here. And we see this as other, other places in Scripture where brilliantly white garments are associated with signs of heavenly beings. Many of these are in Revelation, as you would expect. Also, I've always thought of the transfiguration taking place at night, and it might have been at night. 
Um, but I've always thought that. I think most people think that. Maybe it's the pictures that are out there of uh, or renderings of what people mm-hmm. thought that would have been. But it just easily could have happened during the day as well. And having seen the mountain that they were literally climbing, it might have been during the day. And so it's, it's one thing to notice a brilliant white at night due to the contrast of darkness all around. But can you imagine what this might have looked like during the day? When you turn on a flashlight on a bright summer day outside, you don't notice it's even on. The light's overwhelmed by the brightness of the sun. So I'm imagining that this event did occur during the day. Jesus was literally outshining the sun, which is hard to imagine for us. So if that wasn't enough, we have even more wondrous things happening in verse 4. We're told that Elijah and Moses appear, and they're talking with Jesus. Again, a short and to-the-point description from Mark. But what is the significance of Elijah and Moses? Well, for one, both are deliverers of Israel, Moses, of course, delivered the Israelites from Egypt. Elijah delivered Israel from the worship of Baal. But why not Joshua or David or some other Old Testament hero? There were other deliverers of Israel in the Old Testament. Most commentators make the case for a stronger, more probable reason for Moses and Elijah. The reason they appear in the transfiguration narrative. They're representatives of the prophetic tradition that would anticipate Jesus. This is documented in the New Testament as well. Acts 10, verse 43. All the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Jesus' name. All the prophets bear witness to Jesus. We know this. In Deuteronomy 18, 15 and 18, 18, Moses is defined as the first prophet in Judaism. He represents what a Jewish prophet is throughout the Old Testament. Both Moses and Elijah have conversed with God on mountaintops before. Moses, obviously, on Mount Sinai, that's in Exodus 31, and Elijah on Mount Horeb, that's in 1 Kings 19. They both have been shown God's glory. Both have been rather extravagant departures from this earth. Moses died on Mount Nebo, and God, God himself, buried him in a grave known only to himself. Elijah, of course, was taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. We all know that. Moses was considered the founder of Israel's religious identity. Elijah was the restorer of it. Together, they were the ultimate summary of the Old Testament. Actually, there is a passage in the Old Testament as well where Moses and Elijah do appear together. It's Malachi 4, verses 4 through 6, which I'm going to read because it's really key to understanding several sections of our text. And I was not familiar with this text. Malachi 4, verses 4 through 6. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So the appearance of Moses and Elijah in our text here in Mark chapter 9 likely recalls this passage and their prophetic rules as joint preparers 
of the final prophet to come. Think about what this represents to Peter, James, and John. Jesus is standing there, transfigured in all his brilliant glory, talking with the two heavyweights of the Old Testament as their superior. So this signifies something very important to the disciples witnessing this event. That Jesus' revelation as the Son of God isn't an anomaly. It isn't an arbitrary expression of the divine will. Rather, the presence of Moses and Elijah as forerunners attests to the culmination of a purposeful revelation of God's Son, Jesus, with the history of Israel. And while they are there, speaking with him for a bit, they eventually vanish. So their witness points to Jesus and culminates in him, but does not rival him. Their word and their work are fulfilled in Jesus. So Moses and Elijah are servants of God, prophets of God, and nothing less than divine witnesses to Jesus as the Son of God. So there's a lot going on here. And it's, it's amazing how Mark weaves so many things into so few words. This is just, it's really just amazing. So in the next two verses, verses 5 through 6, we see the response from Peter there with James and John. And we read that they were literally, literally terrified, as you would expect, right? And Peter, being Peter, feels the need to say something and suggest doing something as well. He wants to make three tents, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And this may not make sense to us, but it made sense to a knowledgeable Jew at the time. Judaism always held on to the hope that God would once again tabernacle with his people, as we read in Exodus. What hasn't been made clear to Peter just yet is that God is providing his own tabernacle. Jesus is the new tabernacle of God dwelling with humanity. And Peter cannot establish Jesus. It is Jesus who establishes Peter by his call to discipleship in chapter 1 and fellowship in chapter 3. And the revelation of Jesus' divine nature before the disciples attests to Revelation 21. That, quote, the dwelling place of God is with men, and he will live with them. Of course, Jesus' response to Peter's proposal, as we read, is silence. He doesn't respond to him at all. But in the very next verse, in verse 7, we see that a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. In the presence of the cloud is another key to understanding the transfiguration. A cloud is often used throughout the scriptures as the symbol of God's presence and glory. Moses on Mount Sinai is probably the most familiar one to us since we were just discussing the mountain parallel. In Exodus 24, verses 15 through 16, we read that when Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. And curiously enough, the Greek word that Mark uses for the cloud overshadowing or enveloping them, enveloping them, is episkiazin. That's the only time you'll hear me say that word. <laughs> this is another rare word, and this is why it's relevant. This is a rare word of usage in the scripture. It's used in Exodus 40, verse 35, to describe the cloud that filled the tabernacle with the glory of God so that Moses could not enter it. It's also used in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10-11, through 11, 
to describe the cloud filling Solomon's temple on the dedication day so that the priests could not enter it. Even more relevant, it's used in Luke 1.35, when the angel visits Mary and says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's the word that's used here. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Speaking of the announcement of Jesus himself, of course. So this cloud at the top of Mount Hermon completely surrounded Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, and the disciples Peter, James, and John. The cloud is the very presence of God, symbolizing that in Jesus, even more than in the tabernacle of old, God dwells with humanity. And here, unlike Moses in Exodus and the priests in 1 Kings, Peter, James, and John can enter it. It being the place, of course, where God is. They're in the cloud with God at the mount of at the top of Mount Hor of, of Mount Hermon. And it's this divine presence that speaks in verse 8. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And this is reminiscent of chapter 1, verse 11, if you go all the way back to the beginning of Mark, where we see a similar declaration directed to Jesus, confirming his divine sonship. Everybody remember that? It says, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. But here in chapter 9, it's revealing Jesus' divine sonship to the disciples. This is a divine revelation to them. It's also a command. Listen to him. And we've already seen in, in previous studies about the importance of listening to Jesus, right? Listening with spiritual ears in chapter 4, the parable of the sower. Also, this declaration sets Jesus apart from Moses and Elijah and designates him uniquely as God's son. And this is how it works. We know this. The disciples have not come to the recognition of Jesus as God's son on their own. Understanding the nature of God and God's work in the world is not a human accomplishment. It never is. Faith is always and only our acceptance of the truth that has been revealed to us. Also remember Deuteronomy 18.15 that I referenced a little bit ago. I didn't quote it earlier, but I, I will now. This is the passage that establishes Moses as a sort of prototype prophet for Judaism. This is Moses speaking these words to Israel. Again, Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. This Greek word that's used here is the same Greek word that Mark uses in verse 7. This is the sovereignty of Scripture, friends. This is why Bible scholars study Greek. Unfortunately, they write books that we can read, like I'm reading, right? I'm not studying Greek, and learn from these studies. So again, what exactly are the disciples supposed to hear? We see this over and over again in Mark. Listen well. Here with spiritual ears. And I think the answer here is pretty obvious. We have to go back to the end of chapter 8 again. And the reason I spent so much time there at the beginning of this lesson, it's important to our passage here in chapter 9. Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, but refuses to hear and understand that Jesus, the Messiah, must suffer and die. That's from 831. And in the subsequent verses, 8.34-38, we learn the disciples will also suffer. 
This is the truth that the disciples must accept if they are to understand the person and the mission of Jesus Christ. And this heavenly command, listen to him, designates Jesus not only as the prophet who would follow Moses, but also as the son who must suffer and who calls his disciples to suffer. This simple phrase is literally God's confirmation of the journey to the cross, both for Jesus and his disciples. The conclusion of Mark's account of the transfiguration is a bit unique. We, We again get a minimal description from Mark, but there's still a lot to unpack here. It's from the perspective of the disciples, having just heard this heavenly voice, and then in verse 8, suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So just a quick recap here of, of the events this far. So they start being led up a mountain by Jesus. It's a big mountain. When they reach the top, Jesus is transfigured before them, as bright as anything they've ever seen. Then Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah. Then Peter is proposing to make tents for everyone. Then a cloud overshadows them. And then a heavenly voice speaks to them. And then there's nothing. Just Peter, James, and John, and Jesus at the top of a mountain. Elijah and Moses, two of the most significant figures of the Old Testament, they're gone. They vanished. It's only Jesus still there with them. Moses and Elijah, as great as they were, have no permanent standing with the disciples. It's only Jesus. He's still there. He's the only one that can complete the mission at hand. And he's not expecting the disciples to go down this hard and quite perilous road alone. This is a unique standing that Mark gives the disciples in his gospel He immerses the disciples completely into these events. And you can just imagine the bewilderment of these guys, right? These simple men having witnessed what they just saw, but I'm sure the comfort of seeing Jesus still there with them meant a lot more than it did before they went up the mountain. Jesus called them to follow him, so he wasn't going to abandon them for glory. He turns from glory to accompany them on the journey to the cross. So verse 8 concludes the first section of this narrative. Jesus, Peter, James, and John are now on their way down the mountain in verse 9. And the structure of this passage has some parallels with the dialogue between Jesus and the disciples after Peter's confession in chapter 8. And the first thing we read is that Jesus charges them to tell no one about what they just saw until, and this is key, until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. This is the last command of silence that we'll see in Mark. It's also the only one of nine commands that has a provision. While the previous commands were absolute, don't tell anybody this, we recall those from previous studies, the disciples now were told to hold their silence only until the resurrection. And we see in verse 10 that they're really not sure what to make of this resurrection, right? this rising from the dead, because... In order to rise from the dead, the Son of Man must first die. And it kind of feels like they're still not accepting of that truth, even after everything that just just happened. And frankly, they're 
they're unprepared for any notion that the Messiah must still suffer and die before his entrance into glory. And there are two effects of this command to be silent. First, it reinforces that the cross and resurrection are the only vantage point from which Jesus' life and ministry can be fully understood. Until the cross and resurrection, all other knowledge of Jesus is inadequate. This is a fact that often gets lost in us because we see everything revealed to us in history, right? We know it happened. But remember the theme. The kingdom of God can only come through Christ's suffering and death. Had the disciples not been commanded to be silent, they could have easily been prompted from the afterglow of the surreal experience that they just had with Jesus. They would have got all hyped up on the adrenaline of the moment, rather than focus on the necessity of the humble journey to the cross. The second effect is to highlight the fact that disciples are still blind to the reality of of who Jesus is. The reality of him having to suffer and them having to suffer. And this is a not-so-subtle reminder that these men are not in fellowship with Jesus because of their knowledge, their virtue, or their spiritual or special abilities. Rather, it's Jesus' sovereign call. And they remain in this fellowship only because of Jesus' faithfulness to them. Despite everything that's happened up to this point, healing the sick, casting out demons, performing all kinds of miracles, witnessing the transfiguration of Jesus just now in this chapter, they are all still without the full knowledge and understanding of what's going on. They're continuing to follow Jesus, and that's key. It's not unlike the Israelites continuing to follow Moses through the wilderness. It's not unlike Mark's original audience of Roman Christians under heavy persecution. And it's a reminder to us when we're experiencing trials, especially spiritual trials, to always follow Christ. And he doesn't promise instant glory. We know this. There's often a road of suffering and pain to get us there. But if we follow him, we'll always get there. But the disciples aren't there yet. In verse 11, we see them question about Elijah's return, which is nothing more than a very subtle rebuke, again, of the need to suffer and die. I'm not sure if you caught that or not. I did not catch this initially either. The intention of the question is to suggest that Elijah's return is necessary to restore all things. And so, this should eliminate the need of the Son of Man to die. That's the spirit of the question they're asking. And just to note the reference, this reference is to the final verses of Malachi again, where Elijah is sent by God before the great and terrible day of the Lord to restore righteousness and harmony in human relationships. This is Malachi 4. These are the final verses of the Old Testament, by the way. We we read them previously. Jesus does confirm Elijah's role of restoration. He says, Elijah does come first to restore all things. But that's not the end of the story. Something else must happen before the final restoration on the day of the Lord. And Jesus raises this in his counter-question in the second part of verse 12. He says, And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So if the restoration of righteousness and peace for which all people long is immediate and impending, 
as the disciples are insinuating in their question, when do they see, when, and then why, do the scriptures testify that a righteous suffering figure must necessarily precede the final restoration of the day of the Lord? And I leaned on in James Edwards' commentary on Mark uh, heavily for this. <clears throat> this kind of... Uh, Difficult to unravel, but he, he did it very well. So Jesus refers to this righteous sufferer in three images in these last couple of verses. The Son of Man, the suffering servant of Isaiah, and Elijah. The first is as a Son of Man of whom it is written. The formula, it is written, attests to the divine will ordained and prescribed for the Son of Man. And we see this all the way back, again, chapter 1, verse 2 of Mark. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah 52 and 53 are widely accepted as prophesying the coming of Jesus Christ. Specific to our passage, we're just going to look at Isaiah 53, 3. It reads, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces as he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And this suffering of the Son of Man is not a misunderstanding on Jesus' part, or an anomaly of the divine will, but an inherent part of his identity. The statement from Jesus here in verse 12, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt, appears to recall the suffering servant of the Lord in Isaiah. So Jesus is in fact claiming to be Isaiah's suffering servant. And I don't believe this is clear to the apostles at this moment. It will be, but not right at this moment. <clears throat> Finally, in verse 13, Jesus responds that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased. This was likely a shock to the disciples because there's no real hint that Elijah would also suffer before the day of the Lord. That was unknown to them. But this reference to the suffering of Elijah is actually a reference to the death of John the Baptist. This is spelled out for us very clearly in Matthew 17, 13. This passage is almost identical of the transfiguration account and subsequent events in Matthew, except verse 13 is tagged on there, and it literally says, the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So it doesn't really get much more clear than that. So this just got a little more real to the disciples. Remember, they were just referring to, to Elijah in chapter 8 as some thinking Jesus was, in fact, John the Baptist. Elijah was also referred to in chapter 8, but he's been gone for 600 years. But they knew John the Baptist. He was a contemporary of theirs. And they knew what happened to him. Would then be any surprise what would happen to the Messiah or them? So this fact must have resonated strongly with the persecuted Roman Christians as well. And it resonates to those suffering under the cross today. But we are reminded throughout Scripture that the inevitable suffering that results in disciples, discipleship to Jesus is not a sign of abandonment by God but of fellowship with the Son of Man, who must, quote, suffer many things and be treated with contempt. 
So it's not unnatural for fallen man to want God's glory without the sacrifice and the suffering, right? Our culture is a testament to that. But this passage reminds us that Jesus' suffering leads to glory. And he suffered on our behalf so that our suffering in him would also lead to glory. And again, in hindsight, it's encouraging to know that these disciples eventually did get it. And they finished well. Read 2 Peter chapter 1 this afternoon and be encouraged in that. I'm going to end this with a quote from Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. This illustrates the fact that the Apostle Paul also got it and wrote many reminders of this in his writings. This is one of them. Philippians 3, 7 through 11. But whatever I gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the, un, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. <clears throat> for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. May this be an encouraging reminder to us as well. Thank you.